Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's have our Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 8. I'd love for you to have this text open this morning as we uh, walk in this continued message that Matt talked about in this theory called The Cruciformed Life. Uh, I got some good news for you. Uh, beginning this Thursday and next Sunday, we are going to open up our children's programming again, uh, inviting families to come back. We're excited about this. We've been prayerful about it, uh, watching the trends in our community and taking the best advice we can get. Uh, we want you to know we're going to continue to provide safe spaces and care uh, for all of us, and we sure appreciate those of you who are helping us do that. Uh, we're going to ask you to communicate that to friends and family members here at the church who may be staying home because uh, there's not programming for their children and their children are too young to sit in here for an hour without being kids and we love our children so we want them to enjoy their experiences and learn at age appropriate levels. So if you have concern about crowds, well, for you all here, this is the perfect service to come to. You can have your en- entire section. We also want you to know beginning next week, anybody who sits behind the camera will pay $50 service fee for those select seats. Uh, just wondering if you're ever listening. Okay, maybe not. All right. So we're in this series called The Cruciform Life, and we're looking at the way that the cross of Jesus and the man on the cross shape us, how it changes the way we think, how it changes the way we live, and how it redefines our purpose. Here's what we've learned so far. The cross shows us the wisdom and love of God. By going to the cross himself, he did an amazing thing to display to us how he was going to overcome our rebellion. The cross gives us a place to be unified with others as we use our talents and our gifts for him. The cross challenges us to die to self and to protect the the thing that is the church, to protect the unity and sanctification of the church so that God can continue to bless the mission of the church. And the cross helps us to deny the sins of the flesh, to no longer live for temporary satisfactions, but to live for something greater. I want you to know that today's text in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, sometimes when you listen to it, you think, well, this is kind of a weird text for people in our age, but it really isn't. I want you to know that I think that this text in particular may be more challenging than Michael's was two weeks ago on do you love the church enough to protect the sanctity of the church by addressing your friends and family about sin. I think it's also gonna be a little more difficult for some of us than even last week's message about sexual purity and living in a sex-saturated culture. So how do you relate to someone who disagrees with you? And in issues that are small and issues that are large. How do, you, how do you relate to someone who might offend you or distress you or someone who takes something too seriously? Because Paul is going to be writing to a group of people about what theologians might call secondary issues of conscience. In other words, matters of opinion. Because I want you to know that churches are seldom divided over doctrinal issues. They always seem to be divided over opinions. Somebody wants a certain thing, should be done this way, and if it's not done this way, it's wrong, and that's called the secondary opinion. It's not actually a doctrinal truth. Now, I don't wanna make light of this, but I wanna tell you, in my lifetime, I've experienced where secondary issues have been damaging to churches. I don't know who taught me this. In fact, I don't think anybody taught me this. I just picked it up, and I applied it to everyone I ever met. You see, issues of conscience or issues of opinion in my lifetime that have affected the church have been issues like alcohol, 
tobacco use, certain styles of music. I talked to generations that have preceded me, to my parents and a few others, and they have told me in the past that back then that there were certain things like Christians don't dance, or Christians don't play cards, Christians don't go to movies, Christians wouldn't wear blue jeans to church, sorry mom, and Christians certainly never ate out on a Sunday because that was breaking the Sabbath. Now some of you might think I'm being a bit snarky here or making fun of it, and to a degree, I'm not making fun of it, but I want you to understand that these are present all around us. And if you dig, dig deep down inside your own soul, if you're honest with yourself, there are certain things that you hold as a standard that every Christian should honor, and if they don't honor it, you will question in your soul whether or not they really love and trust Jesus. And that is the spirit to which Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. So today we're not, gonna, we're not gonna beat people up, but we're gonna have a conversation about love. And how does love respond to freedom? And how does it respond to grace? And how does it respond to faith? You see, Paul is answering questions to people who have created their own list of thou shall nots. And he's also talking to people who scoff at those people and say, what's the big deal? Get over it. He's talking about unity and love and protecting the church. In chapter seven, verse one, you might see it there if you look back in your text, it says, concerning the things about which you wrote unto me. In other words, Paul is beginning in chapter seven to begin to answer some questions and comments that he's received from the church in Corinth. He's responding to them, and this is one of those responses. You see, in Corinth, meat that was sold in the marketplace was almost always dedicated to a pagan deity. Let me say that again. Remember, they didn't have freezers. So if they were gonna eat meat, they bought it fresh every day at the marketplace. Or they may have taken the meat that they bought a few days ago and packed it in salt and preserved it. But they didn't have meat stored up for months like we can have. So each and every day they would go, well, whoever was serving in the marketplace and slaughtering their animals would almost always dedicate that meat to a pagan deity. And so this became an issue to some people because as they turned from pagan lifestyles toward Jesus and became a part of the church community, they began to see that these idols, these gods were wrong and they wanted nothing to do with it. So not only did they choose that they wanted nothing to do with meat sacrificed to idols, they also then assumed, as we are all apt to do, that if I shouldn't do it, then neither should you. And they began to set a standard that became divisive, and Paul is directing them toward their standard, which may not always be God's standard. You see, they were withdrawing from certain practices and expecting everybody else to withdraw too. Now, Paul doesn't say it's wrong, but Paul says there's a better way. And today I wanna to show you what the better way is because Paul identifies in this disagreement about meat sacrificed to idols and you and I could interject almost any other issue. And to be honest with you, for the past three decades in ministry, it's not hard to do. Make it about the music in the church, make it about what people wear in the church, make it about alcohol, make it about tobacco, whatever it is, interject those things where there is not a clear thou shall not and you'll find that his argument is about unity, not about who's right. So to make his argument, he uses two terms, strong and weak. He identifies those whose arguments are strong and those whose arguments are weak. So let's take a peek at it. But to be able to do this, I want you to understand, we're, we're talking about levels of faith. 
We're not talking about expertise. We're not talking about productivity. We're talking about areas of faith, those who have strong faith and those who have weak faith. And if we don't keep that in, in mind, we could set up a legal system here that would just ruin Paul's teaching. So we begin. When Paul uses these terms, what strength is not? Let's talk about what a, what a strong person of faith is not. Well, first he uses the word weak, and he says they're weak in conscience. So he's identifying where the struggle is. The struggle is within themselves. They're weak in their faith in such a way that they can tend to become legalistic, they can tend to become scared of doing anything and violating God, which isn't always a bad thing. Respect matters, and fearing God for the right reasons matters, but Paul is identifying someone who is weak in faith. He calls them weaker brothers later in the letter. He's identifying people who are struggling with the standards by which they want to honor God. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I always thought a person who had a weak conscience was a person who felt no guilt about anything, right? A person who could do whatever they want and felt like, I can do whatever I want. I'm free in Jesus. And I always thought that was a weak conscience. But actually, it's a person who struggles with guilt. Paul said it's a person who's trying to live by faith, but actually finds themselves living by law. See, in Paul's reasoning, these people are threatened by freedom. They're threatened by grace, they're threatened by justification by faith. They live in an ignorant fear of God, not a respectful fear of God. And they don't navigate gray areas easily. Now, once again, I don't wanna paint such a picture that they're horrible human beings. They're just weak in the things of trusting God and living their lives for God. They're trying to do the right thing, but they may be doing it for the wrong reasons. They, they can't handle gray areas very well. They want everything to be up or down, no in-between. Good or bad, nothing neutral. In or out, nothing that's a matter of opinion. The strong, Paul would say that a person strong in faith has a knowledge of God and an experience of God. They understand the freedom of his grace, but they don't abuse it. They don't take their freedom for a right to do whatever they want. They take their freedom to be able to live the life that God gave them. Look at verse four again with me. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. So Paul is giving back the reasons to the people of Corinth. He's saying, here's, for those that are stronger in their faith, here's the reasons why this issue doesn't bother you. First, they had studied the scriptures and they realized that nothing in scripture for, forbade them from eating meat sacrificed to idols. Second reason they had, Idols aren't real, so what's the deal? It's all mythology. The idols that these people are worshiping don't even exist. They're made of stone, they're really stone. They're made out of wood, that same wood that burns. How cool is that? Not cool at all. And the third reason they give is that God doesn't care what we eat. Can I have an amen? amen. Thank you, Jesus, for bacon. You see what he says is God's not caught up in these little things that we get caught up in. God is... is into these issues of living out a purity and a holiness that is honoring and loving and unifying, not one that's divisive and elitist. So they had three good reasons why this wasn't a big deal. Now you may say because they're strong, but look at verse seven. You see, he's not applauding the strong of faith. He's cautioning them. He says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. 
Paul is saying, I'm glad you're free in Jesus, and I'm glad that you're experiencing the grace of Jesus and the freedom that he came to bring you. But please understand, sometimes our freedom can do more damage than it brings. This means that their knowledge was not to allow them to feel superior or to exclude others or even to dismiss others as weak. Go back with, to verse one with me. We all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. He just makes this subtle switch here in chapter eight. He sets the theme of it. So is it possible, church, that you can be right and wrong at the same time? Every day of my life, how about yours? I can know what's right, I can try to do what's right, but I can do it in such a way that it ends up being wrong for others. And when it's wrong for others, and it brings disunity, Paul is cautioning all of us. George Washington once said that freedom is bonded to peace. And I've always loved that concept, that our freedom in Christ is bonded to peace. It's not bonded to privilege, it's bonded to peace. Love sets limits on our liberty. Hold on to that thought, because I think that's where Paul is steering us. Remember I told you that this is gonna be a harder teaching for some of us, because our freedoms right now, in our culture and in our day, freedom seems to be the most passionate thing everybody pursues. I have the right to do whatever I want and no one can tell me differently. Freedom should be bonded to peace and unity, not to privilege. So Paul has a word even in our confusing days. So what strength is? What is it really? How does it play out? I wanna take you to another letter that Paul wrote to a church. It's the letter to the church in Rome. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 15 if you have your Bibles open, and I hope you would. In Romans chapter 15, I want you to take to a letter that Paul wrote, and he's dealing with a very similar issue. And I want you to see the consistency in Paul's teaching. This wasn't just a unique message to one church. This is Paul's teaching about our freedom. Verse one, chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now the word accept that Paul uses is a different word than our English word accept, at least the way we use the word accept. Because you might believe that Paul is saying just let everybody do whatever they do and don't worry about anybody but yourself. Just accept people as they are with no judgment, no understanding of right or wrong, and no actual care for their soul. And we know consistent to scripture that is not what we're called to do. Now we're not called to be jerks. But as Michael taught us two weeks ago, we're to care enough to confront if confrontation builds the soul. And so the challenge for the word accept is like found in Romans chapter 14, verse one. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputed matters. Actually, the word, the Greek word that Paul uses for accept here means to pull towards you or alongside of you. 
It's to gather them. It's not just to allow them to stay in error or to stay in misunderstanding. It's not to allow them to stay in legalism. It's to grow their faith. And the way we grow their faith, according to Paul, is by limiting our own freedoms. We do without something so they can do with something better. Paul is saying, accept your brother even when they're wrong because it's spiritual immaturity. Now, think about when you were a child. Can you think of two or three people in your life who put up with your immaturity and are still with you and you value them because they didn't walk away from you because you weren't always everything you were supposed to be? I can name a handful of people. I got more than three. I live with one. For the last 35 years, I've lived with her. And she has put up with my immaturity to help me to grow rather than walking away feeling like, wow, he's really weak. And in the midst of all of this, Paul is challenging us. All the way back to verse, Romans 15, verse one again. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. That's one translation, or the weaknesses of the weak. You see, you can evaluate a person as weak, it's okay. When you're talking about faith, it's okay to look at someone and realize that they don't quite fully understand yet all that God has in store for them. They don't understand grace. They don't understand being justified by faith. They, they believe that their performance is the difference. They believe that what they do and don't do is what pleases God most. And instead of looking down on them, Paul says, it is our job as a community of faith to walk with them, to get them to understand, no, 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 your performance is a tribute to God, but God loved you before you ever performed one single thing. And Jesus died on the cross to overcome any performance. Bear with the weaknesses of the weak, and it will cost us something. Don't forget that weakness sometimes means they're in error. Sometimes a person can simply be wrong. And we need to show them in the scriptures where they are wrong. But we show them so that they become right before God and right within their own hearts. Because the battle is not external. The battle of weak faith is internal. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all of your knowledge, eating an, in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Now this is technically called a rhetorical question. In other words, the answer is so obvious, nobody answers it. When I was preaching back in Michigan, one of my favorite moments of all time, now you have to remember, I have a Three Stooges sense of humor, so you might judge me at the end of this, but remember what my sermon's about, right? If I'm weak, help me be strong. Did I just cover my tracks really well there? Well, one time I was preaching in church and I asked this rhetorical question out in front of the entire, it was our first service, it was our, eight, our 8.30 service back in Michigan, and there might have been 40 people in the room. And about three rows, right about where you folks are, was a young boy named Michael. Michael was sitting with his dad, John, who's one of my best friends. And one time I asked the question to the entire church, not expecting anyone to answer, because they were a lot like you all, they just stared at me. And I asked the question, I said, would any of you die for a friend? Expecting to move on quickly. And from an eight-year-old, three rows in front of me, he went, no. And the church did exactly what you all just did. His father, John, trying to silence him, realizing we don't speak in church, his, his dad reached over to put his hand on his mouth to silence Michael, and he was closer than he thought, so his forearm took Michael right in the face. So here's what I heard. Would any of you die for a friend? No. Boom. And his head went into the wood pew and echoed through our church. And since I'm a 12-year-old at heart, I started to giggle while preaching and couldn't stop. 
And I looked over and Michael's rubbing the back of his head and his dad's laughing and I'm laughing and it was a beautiful moment, okay? Anyway, when Paul says to the church, if someone who struggles with their performance as pleasing God sees someone who they respect doing something that they don't think they should do, do you think it's gonna cause them to struggle? And what's the answer, church? Of course it is. Paul continues, verse 11. So this weak brother or sister, now he's not demeaning them. He's compassionate toward them. This weak brother or sister from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. In other words, your freedom may be good for you, but sometimes your freedom's not good for anybody else. And man, I don't wanna, I don't wanna belabor this, but do you think our world needs to hear this today? That yes, you have the right to do whatever you choose to do, but that doesn't make it right. We have to care for one another. We have to protect one another. In Romans 14, 23, he says, he, he that doubts is condemned if he eats because he doesn't eat believing. This verse has always bothered me because I struggle with my freedom and my right to do what I choose to do. And if I accept full responsibility for what I do, who else's business is it? Paul says, Mark, grow up. If you're gonna be a part of a family, you're a part of a family. It's not just you. And so in the midst of this, he says that if a person eats and their conscience is is messed up over it, if they have a struggle with it, if you ask them to do something that they're free to do but it bothers them because it makes them feel like they're dishonoring God and they're persuaded by you, not by God. If they're persuaded by your pressure and your influence and what you think of them rather than what God thinks of them, Paul says tap the brakes. Don't put anybody in a position where they have to choose you over their own conscience. When the weak brother thinks, I don't want to be narrow-minded, I don't want people to think I'm shallow, I don't want to be called weak, but they struggle, Paul says, and care for them. Give up your right to go into that place and eat that meat. Don't do that in a public place that causes them to, to wonder, causes them to hurt, causes them to be concerned. You see, our consciences are like the rudders of our lives. Now, Paul will tell us in the book of Romans that sin compresses our conscience so it doesn't feel what it should anymore. So Jiminy Cricket was wrong. You can't let your conscience be your guide. You have to let the Holy Spirit be your guide and your Holy Spirit is the one who brings life to your conscience. For instance, let's just play a little game so you can reconnect with me. Is stealing wrong? All right, three of you believe so. The rest, I'm gonna have a sermon on stealing for nine weeks. Let's try that again. Is stealing wrong? Is lying wrong? Is murder wrong? Now you all know that, but you don't know that because the scriptures told you that. You know that because your conscience is alive and you realizing that taking advantage and harming another person is simply wrong. It's why when you were two years old and mom said not to take a cookie before dinner and then she foolishly left the kitchen and you snagged that cookie, why when she walked back in the kitchen did you instantly put that cookie behind your back and not chew anymore? It wasn't because there was a scripture that said hide the cookie. It's because your conscience said, I did something I should not have done and I just got caught. So what happens when the conscience is provoked, if we're dealing with a sin that the scriptures say is wrong, it is universally wrong. But there are some people who struggle with things that you don't struggle with and instead of acting like they're inferior, Paul says, why don't we walk with them and show them true grace? Show them the truth of who God is and his mercy. Because your conscience can change. There were things that when you were younger in your faith you would never have done that now you have freedom to do and you're like, wow, 
And remember, there were other things that you thought you had freedom to do, and now your conscience says you probably shouldn't do that. And it's all different for all of us. Some of us have triggers in our lives that certain kinds of of temptations get to us that others don't. We talked about that last week. The Holy Spirit is a better guide of our conscience than any other human being is. So Paul said, let's lead people toward the Holy Spirit and his guidance and see what happens. So the Bible may give you freedom, and your conscience may give you freedom, and your strength and tendencies may give you freedom, but your love may cause you to lay your freedom down to walk with somebody who needs companionship. So the question of the morning church is this, are we willing to limit our freedoms to love those who need to experience it? Are we willing to put aside and to take on, as Michael said two weeks ago, inconveniences and difficult conversations and a burden of someone else's journey for the sake of the kingdom? And I hope our answer will be yes. Because there are people in our world every day who need someone to walk with them as they learn to follow Jesus. So the third point this morning is, who needs strong, grace-filled relationships? Well, it's kind of a rhetorical question again, isn't it? Everybody in this room, and everybody listening to me online, and this preacher. Verse eight. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. I just wanna parse that verse for a second. When it comes to matters of conscience, God is growing us. And those who will not do something that they could be allowed to do, they're okay. But no one's better for doing it either. Notice that Paul says that, and this is where I was enlightened. Paul says if you have freedom in Christ and you use that freedom, that doesn't make you better than someone who doesn't. It just means you're at a different stage, a different pace, a different understanding. But people who need to understand that we are justified by faith. The weak says, it's my behavior that God is pleased with. And Paul says, no, it's not. They need to understand that. But they'll only understand that if someone walks with them gracefully. Am I supposed to govern my life by how it affects somebody else? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. That's what we, that's part of our sacrifices, is to love one another as we've been loved. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Why should I give up my freedom? Why should I put in the extra work? Why should I have to go and slow down my, my walk of faith to help somebody else catch up? Because Christ died for them too. And is there anybody in this room who can't think of one person who slowed their pace down so you could catch up? who walked with you slowly and gently and carefully so that you could know what you know today and celebrate what you celebrate today? I think we know the answer to that too. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 25, when he talked about sacrifices that people made, visiting those in prison and feeding the hungry and giving water to the thirsty, he said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to who? To me. Jesus said, will you slow down your walk so others can learn to walk? to learn to trust, to learn to stand before Jesus clearly and openly. Every other religion in the world says that your efforts justify you. The gospel says it's not your past, it's Jesus' past. The gospel says it's not your record, it's Christ's record. It's not your performance, it's Christ's performance. The scriptures say receive one another just as Christ received you. 
So what are we supposed to do with a message like this? Is it just rhetorical? Am I just telling you you ought to do this? And everybody goes, yeah, I know, I ought to do this. No, no, it actually, each and every time, I want you to know that there is a thing to do, think, and become. If I'm ever gonna persuade anybody, one of these three actions is required. That you do something, that you think differently about something, or that you work to become something. And Paul says in a world that's disunified, and especially in American culture, where the individual rights are supreme above everything else, the church is a different place. That we will say no to self to say yes to somebody else. And you are surrounded every day by people who need you to slow your freedom walk down just enough that you walk with them. And teach them what it means to be justified by Jesus, not by their performance. Because then, here's what I've learned. When a person understands it's not what we do, but what Jesus did, they actually do more. Because they're enjoying the freedom of living their lives for someone other than themselves. Which is exactly what Jesus showed us on the cross, wasn't it? That he paid the price so you and I could be free. Free enough to say no to ourselves, to help somebody else discover who he is. Let's pray. Father, teach us to follow the selfless Jesus. Father, introduce us to people around us every day who we might share the good news of the gospel in such a way that their consciences are freed to understand love and to live a life that honors you from the purity of their love for you, not fear and not legalism. And may all of us who struggle with the thou shall nots, may we most celebrate the thou shalls as we live our lives for you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, my prayer this morning is that there is a person here in this space who's hearing my voice, who has not released their soul to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that they might this day offer themselves to him. They might have a conversation with somebody here and simply say, I am going to give myself to him and he is going to love me. May that be your victory today, Father, as you teach us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.